was worth doing, wasn't it? That was fun. Um, good evening, everyone. Welcome to London Thinks Who at Conway Hall, home of the Conway Hall Ethical Society, who are hosting this event tonight. And where else would the doctor come to debate the ethics of what he does? There is very good free Wi-Fi here. Um, it's Conway Hall if you're looking for it. And the hashtag, if you want to tweet about it as we go, is... London Thinks Who. Um, you can support Conway Hall's Ethical Society events and programmes for becoming a member. There are membership forms on your seats, um, and you can also join online via the website. And Newham Books will be selling copies of The Scientific Secrets of Doctor Who, um, which you can get signed at the back um, straight after the event. And we've got time for questions as well. So the format of the evening is, um, I'm going to do a bit of an interview with Simon um, and Marek, and they've got some great clips, um, courtesy of BBC Worldwide, so we can talk through some specific ethical dilemmas. Um, and, and then there'll be a chance for questions too. Um, and I want to say thank you to BBC Worldwide, who've given permission to show the clips here. It's one of the reasons we're not filming it, um, that we're recording the audio. Um, and all the episodes are available on DVD and Blu-ray. And indeed... <laughs> Indeed, some people might be aware that Simon Gary's produced a lot of the little DVD extras. And in fact, if you, is it Vengeance on Varos? It might be that I narrated one of the little films on that DVD. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. So, Simon Gary has written many Doctor Who books, comics, um, audio plays, um, and made documentaries. He produced H.G. Wells and the H-Bomb, which we made together for Radio 3, which is on iPlayer now, and we made one together called The Fundamentalist Queen about the wife of Oliver Cromwell, but he'd written an Oliver Cromwell Doctor Who adventure, so, yes. you know, he'd already done all the research. And he's on Front Row tomorrow talking about uh, the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb in films and TV, yes. There you go. Um, Dr. Marek Kukula, have I said that correctly? Very good. Thank you. Is the public astronomer at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, where, of course, time and space began. And are officially measured for that's, that's what we tell everybody. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, start by telling me the idea behind the book, because I want to say I read it, I, I really loved it. It is not a book which says, if you had a sonic screwdriver, how would it work? It's not that at all. How would you sum up what you've done with it? Well, I think we wanted to, we wanted to look at the real scientific ideas that had gone into Doctor Who. Uh, and although sometimes if you watch the series, that the science isn't, isn't that close to the, the front of the screen, if you like, there is a lot of science behind it and a lot of science that goes into the thinking behind it. And we wanted to sort of bring that out and use the popularity and the excitement of the series to get people excited about real world science as well, because that's my job. And you've broken it down into themes, and crucially, there are these wonderful short stories before each chapter, written by writers who'd worked on the original TV series and written for different doctors. Yes, so the, um, the big idea from the editor was to mix up the explanations with, the, with stories. He was um, inspired by uh, the Science of Discworld books, which Terry Pratchett wrote with, with two scientists. Um, and the idea was that that way it would appeal to people like Marek, who are into the science first, and the Doctor Who second, and it would appeal to people like me, who are, <laughs> who are into the, the Doctor Who, because I came to science quite late. I was terrible at it at school and ignored it as much as possible. But you now have an A-star in astronomy. Uh, as, a result of, as a result of Doctor Who, and I want, all I wanted, all I was using Marek for was to give me cool ideas to write Doctor Who stories about. And then there was a point at which he said, I think you're 
grasp of science is so bad. I, I never, I never <laughs> said that. I was, I, was Simon's, I was Simon's scientific advisor, unpaid, but I didn't get the yellow vintage car or the, the glamorous leggy assistant, unfortunately. You got, you got a few CDs. I did get, I got some nice CDs. But, but basically, Simon was asking me questions about science and astronomy. I was very happy to answer them, but I was saying to him, look, if you knew a bit more about science yourself, you'd be, answering, you'd be asking smarter questions and, and getting more out of it. <laughs> And he does, and he, he, does. Does. he does. And it's, it's true, one of, the, one of the CDs that I then wrote is based on one of my homeworks. It's, it's a homework answer that I turned into a Doctor Who story, which Excellent. I'm very pleased with. Uh, give me examples of, of some of the themes that are in the book then, and how you've done them by chapters. So the book is divided up into three sections. Uh, first one is space, the second one is time, and the third one is humanity. And what we try to do, there's five chapters in each one, and we try to explore different themes of science, but to, uh, I was very keen to use tangible e examples of these things. So there's a lot about how the space missions worked, how satellites work, things that, that are relatable um, rather than abstract concepts. And also to use lots of examples of Doctor Who to illustrate them or explore them um, was the idea. So it's a, it's a fairly um, esoteric kind of journey through science. I try to cover as much, we, we try to cover as much ground as possible. So there's a, there's a chapter about whether history is a science. There's a chapter about medicine and the history of medicine. Um, so yeah, something for everybody. Um, tell me a bit about your favorite doctor and your favorite adventure, each of you, Merit, first. <laughs> It's, it's really hard, isn't it? I, I read in Doctor Who magazine recently, um, Colin Baker, railing against the idea of people having favourites. Um, there are lots of bits of Doctor Who uh, that I like. There are lots of bits of individual Doctors that I like, but I think my favourite has, has to be Tom Baker because he was my, my Doctor. And if I had to pick a story, um, I think I'd actually go for The Robots of Death because it's such a brilliant murder mystery. And you really see that, that idea of people looking for clues and then kind of coming to the, the unexpected conclusion, the conclusion that, that people really don't want to come to. They're kind of stepping back from it. They're forcing themselves not to accept the truth because it's too, too frightening. Favourite assistant? Again... Um, Sarah Jane Smith, Sarah Jane is, she is brilliant and she was really my, my kind of first assistant. But I think in terms of character, I'd have to go for two, Leela and Romana. And they're, they're the two kind of characters that, that we don't seem to get in Doctor Who anymore, that the companion now seems to have to always be a contemporary quite sort of sassy young woman, but I like the idea of a, of a primitive who is completely out of place in these te technological societies, and then this super intelligent woman who was as clever as the doctor, and, and kept telling him off and, and putting him right. Yeah, I'd love to see characters like that again. Absolutely. Um, Simon, what about for your favourite doctor, favourite story, favourite assistant? Oh, that's so unfair. Yeah, I know. I, I know some of these people. The word will get back. <laughs> oh, okay. We're being recorded. Um, oh God, I, I I'm going to choose uh, Tom Baker because that's where I came in. And I think, generally, that's the most important thing. It might not be the first Doctor you saw, but it's when you become a fan, that's generally the one that, that, that holds right. And also, where, what the circumstances that, that you were watching it in. Um, so I remember sort of late Tom Baker watching Doctor Who with my older brother and sister. And so it's, his late adventures are very caught up in that sort of thing. So, so I feel that a great deal. Um, and as for favourite companions... I don't know, they'll, they'll murder me if I say the wrong one. I'm going to say Ace, because uh, 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 she's Ace. the one that hits hardest. Yes, <laughs> very good. Um, 
tell me a little bit about, before we start showing clips, about the relationship between the writers of Doctor Who and real scientists, because it struck me, especially watching some of those early episodes, there's real science being kind of, or real scientific discussion, maybe the educational part of the Rethian brief coming through very clearly in some of those episodes. Yeah, so when Doctor Who began, uh, back in 1963, his first uh, companion, the, fir the first story is set in a school, and two teachers, one history teacher and one science teacher, stumble into the TARDIS, and he basically kidnaps them, and they go off on adventures. And sometimes they land in periods in Earth history where it's really helpful to have a secondary school history teacher <laughs> <laughs> who can explain what's going on. And other times, um, even in the historical stories, uh, that they'll arrive in, they'll have situations where it's very useful to have a secondary uh, science teacher there who can explain about condensation or the weird properties of mercury, which is a metal, but it's a liquid at room temperature and therefore a bit strange. Um, and, and so there, there is a kind of Reithian idea that the show would be educational as well as fun. But story by story, some of the science in it is um, better, some is better than others. And then over, over the, the, the 50 years of the show, lots of different people with lots of very different sensibilities have worked on the show. So there was a point in the mid-60s where they actively looked for a scientific advisor. And um, the script editor at the time, Jerry Davis, had lunch with uh, Patrick Moore and with Alex Comfort, who was later uh, famous for writing The Joy of Sex. <laughs> Um, could have been interesting. Uh, uh, running through all those episodes and trying to work out which one you consulted on. Uh, and and uh, they settled on an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist called Kit Pedler. And amongst the things that Kit Pedler and Jerry Davis came up with was the Cybermen. Um, oh. and, uh, and then later in the 70s, uh, you get um, Douglas Adams was the script editor on the show and an, a writer that he employed, David Fisher, on a story called Creature from the Pit. Um, David Fisher actually went and talked to the physicists at Cambridge that Douglas Adams knew, and I think this is right. Well, I couldn't track it down for the book, um, but I think that as a result of this, the physicists published a paper on how you'd communicate with an alien that came out of their discussions with David Fisher about that. And if you know the scene from Creature from the Pit where Tom Baker talks to the alien, you'll know how funny that is, because it's the weirdest thing in Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> And, and then there's, there's other examples of it, where, where uh, 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 Douglas Adams' successor, Christopher Bidmead, um, all of Tom Baker's last story is about entropy and the way that the BBC Micro is programmed. Um, <laughs> which, true. in 1980 and 1981, seemed it was, mad. It was cutting edge, it was yeah. really cutting edge. Um, and then there are other times when then the people on the show weren't bothered, you know. So, so it cuts both ways. And um, there's Earthshock, um, which was linked to the asteroid theory by extinction, wasn't there? Yes, yeah, so uh, Earthshock, which is a Peter Davison uh, Cyberman story. The death of... Uh, yeah, spoilers. Oh, uh, <laughs> anyone doesn't know, okay. But it's the only episode without any music at the end. That's right. Mm. Um, but the, the, the theory that it, invo that it involves, which is that the dinosaurs were wiped out by a collision with the Earth, was a new idea, the Alvarez hypothesis, it's called, and uh, by, by a father and son team, both, both called Alvarez and that uh, it had been on Horizon, and it had been in New Scientist around the time that that story got commissioned. Um, and, and now it's pretty much the scientific cons consensus of what happened. But at the time, that was 
That was them chancing their arm and going, that's a cool idea, let's do a story. It really was, it was cutting edge. I think the theory was published in 1980 and the story came out in 1981. And 82. It, so well, it's, yeah, close. Very, very close. You know the Ayatollah Khomeini wrote advice about relationships with extraterrestrials? What? Seriously, <laughs> I, I read a book about the Iranian Revolution and he wrote spiritual guidance and all kinds of things. And apparently he wrote a section on, like, if you were to meet aliens, could you have sex with them? And he'd written about what's Islamic. <laughs> That's another event, I but I thought I'd just drop that in. <laughs> I note that the Vatican does have a policy about aliens and whether they should be evangelised, and, and they accept that some of them might be unfallen, so they might be better than us. Okay, so. but just don't use a condom. Well, exactly. <laughs> right, so you've chosen some clips from episodes to discuss some of the ethical dilemmas that the doctors faced, um, and that real scientists have faced over the years. And our first few featured the Daleks, um, so you're going to tell us about each one that you've chosen before we see it. Um, and then we'll chat a little bit about it. So tell us about the first clip that you're going to show us. So the, uh, the clips are in chronological order, because uh, I'm a nerd. And uh, this takes us almost all the way back to the beginning. This is a clip from the Dalek invasion of Earth from November and December 1964. And um, what I do when I'm writing Doctor Who books and comics and audios is I try and put off the writing for as long as possible by watching lots of Doctor Who and just telling my wife that it's very important research. <laughs> and um, when I was watching the first year of Doctor Who, I noticed something very odd that had never struck me before, that, that usually the Doctor in that first year only gets involved in fighting monsters because he, that's the only way he can get his companions back who've been kidnapped, or that's the only way that they can get back to their ship and escape. He's not really interested in fighting baddies until this point, which is the, the second Dalek story. It's a year into Doctor Who. It's about 40, I think episode five of this story is the f uh, 50th episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> um, now, some people, like me, I didn't see this episode. I saw the Peter Cushing films that were made based on this episode, Daleks yeah. Invasion of 2150 AD. And um, there's a lot of echoes of World War II and that whole idea of dealing with this absolutely incomparable evil. Um, what are your observations about the significance of the dilemmas in this one? Well, I mean, I, I like you, I saw the films before I saw the, the TV version on, on DVD. And it is quite a horrible scenario. I think right at the beginning, you see this sort of ruined London and the, these signs by the river, you know, it is forbidden to, to dump bodies into the river because they've had this plague. And it's, so it is a very grim scenario. And I think, you know, we forget people at that stage, 1964, was 64. it? they still remembered the war, you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was still very much in living memory. Uh, and, and even quite young people could remember it. So it was very much alive, I think. Um, but also this idea of, I mean, you have a real sense of the, the resistance and people making a choice about whether to collaborate or whether to resist. Um, was there any information about who wrote it and whether they were drawing on their own experience or just this collective memory of the well, war? Well, Terry Nation, who wrote it, um, had grown up as a child during the war. And so he talks about it. And the very first Dalek story, has echoes of the First World War as well. It's, it's set in a, on the ravaged planet Skaro that's, that's as, uh, petrified and, and dead as a result of a, a neutronic, an atomic war. Um, and you have this scientific elite who, uh, uh, the Daleks who live in their city in these, in these metal shells because of the radiation in the atmosphere. And then there are these Aryan people, the Thals, who have drugs that can, that can uh, counter the effects of the radiation. And that's tapping into all sorts of elements of the Second World War. And um, 
you know, there's 19 years, the Dalek invasion of Earth is 19 years after the Second World War. So if you can remember when Paul McGann was a new thing in Doctor Who, that's how long ago it was. So, so it's kind of, it, it was recent enough. And if you were, even if you didn't remember the war yourself, you grew up in a world where that's all anybody would talk about. That's the shared thing of it. So it's tapping into a very emotive um, and deeply, deeply rooted uh, emotions and things. What's, what's, as I said, what's really interesting about it is the Doctor's attitude on meeting the Daleks again is to join the resistance. He's not, there's no hesitation. As he says, you won't conquer the earth until you've destroyed all living matter. So that's the trees, the cockroaches, the, uh, you know, all of it. It's, it's, a, it's a real sort of defiant moment. And later, when they talk about what the Daleks' plan is, because very scientifically, the Daleks' plan in that story <laughs> is uh, to, to, to dig a hole in Bedford. That's right. <laughs> Mine out the core of the Earth, put in a motor, and then fly it around as a massive spaceship to invade galaxies. And as David, who, who is, is a, a friend of the Doctor, says, you know, they dare to tamper with the forces of creation. And the Doctor says, yeah, and we must dare to stop them. That's unlike the Doctor up until that point. And I think that's the moment at which the Doctor becomes this person who fights monsters. That's not in the show for the first year. And that's something There's that There's a new happens. moral dimension to yeah. his adventures. Yeah, yeah. And the, ethic, the ethics are very clear. The Daleks are a force, and the Daleks are the first monster to come back in Doctor Who. They're the only monster to come back in Doctor Who until the Cybermen. Um, and they're, they're, there's something about them that means the Doctor has to up his game. And they are brilliant, because we already know that. They're scientific. They're a scientific elite. They're very clever. They've, they've come up with solutions, as we learn, to get out of their city. And they need the Doctor to up his game. So that's... That's what I see in it. Let's go into clip two, which is from Genesis of the Daleks, 1975, my favourite episode. Um, and you've chosen a, a, a key moment from this, haven't you? For a reason. What do you want to tell me about it? Yes, so uh, Genesis of the Daleks, 1975. Tom Baker's first year. He's sent back in time by the Time Lords because they think the Daleks get too powerful. And he's either got to avert the creation of the Daleks or find a weakness. And in episode six... Right, right towards the end, he um, is faced with the dilemma that he, if he just uh, sticks two strands together, he can destroy them, and that this is what happens. Oh, so this is clip down number two, please. That's very good. What do you think of this one, Marek? It, it is one of my favourite stories, I have to say. It's, I think I, I, it must be one of the first ones I have a clear memory of watching as a child, and it really made a big impression on me. And that scene made a big impression on me as a child. You know, I think you... you you, you think of Doctor Who as fighting the monsters and running away from the monsters, but that was the first time I really, really got to grips with the ethical dimension of it. it it's, it's a powerful question. You know, I, still, I still don't know what the right answer is to that one. Do you destroy them before they've begun? Because or? they actually seal them in, don't they? Yes. And we know that. Then. It's sort of a compromise kind of ending. But um, Well, you've called it the two wires moment, and you get that first glimpse that you have the torment of the Doctor, which I feel now has become quite a common... Mm. Um, image that we get in episodes, don't we? Yeah, I think, I think this... I don't think that... Um, the Doctor's never hesitated to destroy Daleks before. Na and since Genesis of the Daleks, he, the, the, the ethical things... Genesis of the Daleks is full of ethical bits and pieces. Davros, the creator of the Daleks, who's introduced in that story, has a scientific elite, and they're fighting this terrible war. 
and the, the scientific elite are conflicted about how far they go and what they do and, and, whether, and there's a rebellion amongst the scientists right. against Davros who think he's gone too far. And there's all sorts of things about... Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a third sort of group on, in the war, the, the mutos, who are mutations that everybody sort of steers clear of. And there's ethical debates about how they're treated and, and what their role is in the war and things. So it's, it's full of those sorts of ethics about what science is for. It also, obviously, the, um, the Daleks are the Mark III travel machine. Davros has tried others, uh, other ways of seeing what, you know, he can, he can keep his uh, people, uh, uh, what will help them survive. And uh, at one point, we see giant clams that he rejects, and, you know, <laughs> one of them bites Harry's leg and stuff. And I love the idea that, that that's what the Doctor... If the Doctor had changed things, that's what they'd be. They'd be these giant Muppets and that. Uh, <laughs> But that, that moment, I think, it, it's, it has repercussions right down into the present day of the series because I think with sort of retrospective uh, continuity, it's that, that moment when the Doctor goes back and tries to change the Daleks' history at the behest of the Time Lords. That is supposed to be the, the beginning of the Time War, which, of course, is the big, the big story in the, the new series. So it, it, it is a turning point for Doctor Who, I think. And, yeah. and also, I mean, let's talk a bit more about time and how it's used because... You reminded me, it's the centenary of Einstein's theory of relativity. General theory of relativity, yes. Which, of course, the first person to create the idea of time is a fourth dimension. Is that right? Time and, and space, space-time, the fact that they're, they're combined together and all of these very strange effects, the way that time and space can be different for different observers, which we, we know are true because your, um, your GPS on your smartphone wouldn't work if general relativity wasn't true. So we've known that time is, is a weird thing for 100 years now, um, and that was well-known even at the time that Doctor Who started. There's also um, an interesting dilemma about... I was thinking of, we, we made this program about you know, Churchill and the creation of the atomic bomb, and this idea of, do you create something so powerful that it could wipe out life? And, and in a different way, that's the dilemma here, isn't it? That you have the option um, to do something terrible, but it's to avert something terrible. And I thought that was quite interesting. Yes, so, so whether or, what the morality of whether it was right to drop the uh, nuclear bomb on, on uh, Japan at the end of the war is exactly where this is coming from. It's exactly the same kind of moral dilemma. It's about whether to stop your enemy, it's right for you to push over the, to, to cross a line. Um, and I think, I think that's, there's lots of evidence. From, we talk about this in the book, about um, the development of the atomic bomb and the, and the morality of what the scientists were involved in. And, and, and uh, uh, Einstein wrote a letter to President Roosevelt saying this is really something we should get behind and then came to regret that. And, and Zillard, who was a Hungarian physicist who came up with the idea of the uh, neutron chain reaction, similarly was writing petitions. First he was writing petitions saying, don't do this work. Then he was writing petitions saying, do do this work. Then he was saying, don't use it. Then he was saying, well, you they, should use it. They wanted a, a bomb test before the Japanese and the German ambassador, didn't they, to give them That's the opportunity right. to surrender, and that was ruled. Um, there's also, of course, and I was thinking that in that plot, there are scientists who decide to walk away from the Manhattan Project, like Lisa Meitner, she doesn't, once it becomes formally militarised and run by the US military, and not a civilian government-run project. Exactly, exactly. And I think, I think the idea that, that actually, you know, that, that Genesis Daleks is not really dealing with science so much, but it's definitely dealing with the ethics of science. And, of and what science might enable you to do. And, 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 and it's definitely tapping into the reality of that science, that ethical debate about science. So that even though 
even though you might quibble the, you know, the, 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 the way that the ray guns work or whatever, would that be possible? Actually, what, what that conversation is with those two wires is, is a profound scientific debate, I think. Yeah, and of course, there's bunkers and black leather and all the rest of it. That kind of has certain connotations. Um, clip three, Revelation of the Daleks, 1985. Why have you chosen this Okay, one? I've chosen this basically because it absolutely thrills me and absolutely horrifies me. It, I think it's one of the scariest bits in Doctor Who ever. And I've really chosen it just so that we can talk about a, a bit later. This is, I think, a moment when the Daleks are absolutely horrific. And it's... Um, uh, a woman called Natasha and her, her friend Gregory have broken in to the hospital or, or funeral parlour where um, Natasha's father is supposed to be because something is odd, odd, something odd is going on there and then they discover this. So uh, clip number three, please. You know when people say, would say mean things on the news about, oh, it's wobbly sets and it's a kid's show? Yeah, yeah. Just, just that, was shown at, um, that was shown about half past five on a Saturday tea time. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, just, just amazing. Um, and and no, no hesitation about that they are really unpleasant. Medical experiments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's something... It's more horrible to become a Dalek than it is to be exterminated by a Dalek, because at least you, you stay yourself. And that, that is really chilling, really chilling. Yeah, so you have, the concept of, you have mercy killing in there, you have horrific medical experiments which throw back to the Nazis again. Body horror... Yeah. Um, all the stuff about family and how we uh, how we attach and are linked to one another. Um, the, the the character Grigory is a doctor, but he's been struck off. So there's all sorts of things about medical ethics in there. Um, yeah, it's it's a it, it's a really horrible thing. To show impressionable. I was an impressionable eight year old, and I yeah that just that yeah that's why I'm still here basically. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's got a lot to answer for. Do you remember the first time you saw that one? Yes, I was a bit, a little bit older than Simon, but even I, I was a teenager, and I remember thinking it was pretty gross. But perhaps because I was a bit older, I, I was probably more aware of all of the different connotations in it. Um, I mean, it, it's a very powerful piece of TV, never mind children's TV or science fiction. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Right, let's go on to the next one. So this is from um, Day of the Doctor, when Clara stops the doctors. Yes, yeah, so um, using the moment. We, we, had the, uh, we had the moment with the two wires, and this gets repeated through Doctor Who. Uh, Russell T. Davis, when he brought back Doctor Who in 2005, made it pivotal. So we know that there, when the, uh, we first meet Christopher Eccleston, uh, he's the survivor of a time war between the Daleks and the Time Lords where nobody won and the Doctor's the sole survivor of his own race. And then we've trickled through, th through the new series as it's been on, we've learned that the Doctor made the decision to obliterate his own people and the Daleks to end the war that was destroying time and space. And then for the 50th anniversary episode in uh, 2013, we get to see that moment. And what's interesting is that it's all about whether the Doctor can press the button. That's all, that's all he has to do. He's got a super weapon, a, like, you know, an analogous to the uh, atomic bomb, as we talked about earlier. And all he has to do is, is press the switch, and it will, it will wipe out his people. And the Doctor from after that, David Tennant, who remembers this moment, can remember that there were 2.47 billion children on his home planet amongst those that he wiped out. And yet he and Matt Smith can see no other option. So when uh, John Hurt's doctor goes back to press the button, they go with him, not to stop him, but just so that there's a consensus. To share the responsibility. He doesn't have to do it alone, which, again, is a, a, you know, there's a scientific, there's a governmental thing. 
Um, and then this happens, which I think is very interesting. So this is clip number four. So what's special about that one for you guys? Moving right into it first. Simon. Well, I think, I think there's a number of things. That, very importantly, a division is made between being a warrior and being a doctor. I think that's a really fundamental part of Doctor Who. And it's been an explicit part of Doctor Who since it came back in 2015, but I think that's always been there. Mm -hmm. um, I think also there's something about the Doctor as a scientist hero. Uh, you know, he, he looks for solutions to problems, and he's faced with a, a problem that seems to have only one solution. And yet he's forgotten something, and it's his, it's his companion Clara who makes him rethink, and he has to take a step back, and then he, then he realises he's wrong. And I think that's very important. A, admitting that he's wrong, but also there must be another way, and, and that's something that comes up quite a lot. Um, and also there, there's, just the, there's just the idea that he can break the rules as well. That, that It says there something that we were never allowed to say when we were writing Doctor Who books and comics and stuff, that the Doctor changes history all the time. He says you shouldn't, but he does it all the time. And um, we're not supposed to, we weren't supposed to mention that in books. And it was kind of like, shh, don't mention that. Um, and yet there it is stated explicitly. And it's great, because it's, it's an acknowledgement of, of what it is and what the rules are, which I, 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 re I really like personally, because okay, that means we can do it now. Um, <laughs> but, but also it suggests a, um, there's a, there's a Stephen Moffat who wrote that episode, wrote an amazing short story, um, his first ever Doctor Who thing years and years ago. Um, which had Sylvester McCoy's doctor trying to borrow a, la a library book that would solve a war, and the librarian wouldn't um, let him have it because it was in a restricted section. So what he does is he changes her life to make her a better person. <laughs> and um, and it, has a it has a lovely bit where she asks him what he's a doctor of, and he says, I'm a doctor of history. And she says, what, you study it? And he says, no, I make it better. I just oh. absolutely love that. And, um, and I think that's all there. I think that's all there. What is a scientist for? It's about, you know, what, what, is the, what is the view of science on there? I think it does, it does really epitomise that idea of the doctor as a scientist. And that is something that, um, that really made a big impression on me as, as a child. I think it's, um, it's one of the reasons why I... It is one of the reasons why I wanted to be a scientist, because you had this character who was solving problems, saving the world, not always saving the world, sometimes just saving the day, um, but he was doing it by being a scientist, not by being a soldier, and it was a total contrast to all of the other heroic figures that we were presented with in the 70s and the 80s, and, and also today, I think. So I think there is a place for a character like the Doctor who, who uses his mind and you know, his problem-solving skills to save people rather than just big guns. It's funny, you were saying that I thought of the Sweeney in the 70s, <laughs> never met. Um, that sets us up very nicely for our next clip, which is from The Caretaker um, in 2014, this idea of science and the military. Shall we have a look? Do you want to tell us anything else about it? Um, yes, yeah, so this is The Caretaker from last year, and this is, um, this is something we talk at more length in the book about, but it's, it's a the doctor who thought he'd destroyed the Daleks and, and his own people and stuff, and he used to be the scientific advisor to UNIT, and they gave him a car and his own <laughs> laboratory and stuff. He's, he he's blown up, you know, his, his customary way of dealing with baddies is to blow up their base and get them to kill themselves by falling off something, um, so he doesn't actually have to do it himself. And yet he's got this odd problem with soldiers, and so this is the, the caretaker from last year. 
And uh, in Into the Doctor, uh, Into the Doctor, Into the Dalek, uh, from earlier in that season, he refuses somebody who could be a potential companion. He won't let her into the TARDIS because she's a soldier. Um, and so there's something very odd going on there. And it's the theme that runs through last year's Doctor Who about basically the difference between being a doctor and going out and, and being a scientist who explores and just wants to have fun and find out stuff, and a soldier. Um, and as we say, the doctor's, the doctor's argument from that is um, inconsistent at best. Well, I was thinking back to all those adventures in the 70s when John Pertwee is essentially working with UNIT and it's always back to the lab and the brigadier, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 as we talk about, that's because I think it's trying to grapple with this thing, that, that, that the doctor is a reluctant soldier, but he's a soldier. And I think, actually, my... my hypothesis that Marek allowed me to share in the book, but um, it's all on me if, it, if people disagree, uh, is that what, what he doesn't like about Danny, the soldier that Clara falls in love with, is that the Doctor kind of has to hold himself back from being a soldier. And that's what he sees in Danny, that, the te that he needs a companion who stops him, like Clara did in the previous clip. A companion who's a soldier is too much of a temptation, I think. What's your view on the whole role of the military? Because I'm really fascinated by how and when unit is used in particular through the episodes. Well, I think, I think it comes from a, a very particular period, doesn't it, in British history. Again, it's going back to this time just after the Second World War, um, where, where science and the military are very, very closely associated in people's minds. You, you've got things like Quatermass, where, again, you have those themes of the scientists working with the military, not always getting on with them, but, um, but they work together because that's just, that's just the way it is. And I think that was playing out very heavily in, in those 60s and 70s stories in a way that now might seem a little, bit, a little bit odd to us because we don't automatically associate science and scientific institutes with soldiers and, and fighting. It's all a little bit separated. Well, the other thing I wonder, I don't know if it's explicit in any episodes, but just in the mind of a viewer watching, is because of recent events, you know, with the way the British military was sent into places like Afghanistan and Iraq, because of political decisions and then the kind of fallout, you have that whole issue of, you know, people talk about Tony Blair be put on trial as a war criminal. And they're really big kind of wounds, aren't they, in the kind of national psyche about the way the military was used and for what purpose. And I wonder how far we've ever had any sense of that being echoed in the doctor's ambivalence about well, the army. I think, it, I think it's there as well, because although a lot of people are very angry about the, the UK's involvement in, in these conflicts, there is this, this very strong sense of support for the armed forces and the integrity of the, the soldiers yeah. and, and the officers. And there is that dichotomy. And I think that's exactly what's playing out in, in that clip that we saw there. It's not so much the soldiers that... Yeah, but uh, they have are. to follow orders. Yes, exactly. It's who's giving the orders and, and, and who's making those decisions. Fantastic. And, and also the evidence that's being used. That's, that's the... the uh, uh, Aliens of London and World War Three, a two-parter from uh, 2005, where the Slovene are developing... It's a very subtle bit of satire, but massive weapons <laughs> of destruction. <laughs> they are faking the evidence so that, of an alien plot. The aliens are faking an alien plot to get people to think, to, to, to get people to, to basically destroy the Earth. And the whole thing is, it, is it's playing on our gullibility and, and, and the fact that we don't join the dots of evidence and things like that, which is, which is talking about the dodgy dossier and, and all of that. But it's, it's also, again, about how we, we see the world. And, 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 and the dots are going, no, but that bit doesn't make sense, and that bit doesn't make sense. It's very scientific, again, uh, 
sort of perspective. But that, that is exactly what he used to do in, in unit as well when it was John Pertwee, didn't he? He'd be saying, no, 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 this is, the obvious conclusion isn't, isn't correct. Look, there's these things that you've missed. You need a scientist to tell you how to, and, how to solve this. And I think that's a, a fundamental part of Doctor Who right there, which is Doctor Who is never what you think it is. You know, if, you, if they arrive in the present day and they walk down an ordinary street, the post box will try and kill them. The lampposts will try and kill them. The uh, sat-nav, the Sontarans are controlling. All of that sort of thing. So that even when they arrive somewhere that seems ordinary and, and recognisable, there's something else going on. And what the Doctor does, where, and, he's, and trains his companion to do, is spot that odd stuff. And actually, that the world is much less... Uh, it, it's, it's the counterintuitiveness of everything. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see that in the... In the development of our scientific knowledge and stuff, that, that we no longer think that the world is flat and we no longer think that the Earth goes around the sun. Those are, those are very rational views of what the world is based on real world, our, our sort of tangible experience. But by, our, by spotting the odd stuff, we can work out that actually something stranger is going on. And I think that's fundamental to Doctor Who. Um wanted to ask a couple of other questions before we open up um, to questions from the floor. One is how the doctors dealt with issues around environmentalism. Um, and kind of environmental politics. And I was thinking of um, the episode about Green Death. Um, I mean, maybe tell us a bit about episodes like that and how far they are just reflecting contemporary anxieties and how far there's real science thinking going on there. Uh, there's a whole chapter on this in the book, which is available from the back of the room. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Doctor Who was, was reasonably ahead of the game. There's a number of things going on. There was a, there was a, um, a bestseller written in, I think, 1961 called Silent Spring, which was about pesticides and the use of pesticides. That's yes. right, uh, and that influenced a um, a story, the story before uh, the Dalek invasion of Earth, uh, called Planet of Giants, in which um, there's a bit where pesticides are being, you know, there's a there's a industrial sabotage plot going on, um, and what you get is this is this um, thing in the environmental movement in the 60s of people taking notice, and, and, and the environmental movement begins to, to take form and, and actually gets certain pesticides uh, banned and so on and so forth. There's a correlation, though, between the photos we were getting from space, from the Apollo missions, and the first images of Earth from space and the blue marble and whatever. The, the famous uh, Earthrise. Earthrise, with yes. the moon, the, a little bit Apollo of the moon. Apollo 11, I think. Yeah. Uh, Apollo 8, uh, eight, eight. Apollo eight. Yeah, There were several of them, but Apollo 8, yeah, yes, the first, first one. First one. Um, and the joined-up thinking of the environmental, where, where rather than thinking about, oh, the, that bit of America has a problem with pesticides, or, or this bit of England is, is having problems with, with uh, native crops failing against the onslaught of, of other seeds and things, Suddenly, you start people thinking about the whole Earth as an ecosystem, as a complicated ecosystem. And the Green Death in 1973 is pretty much on the button for when that's happening. Just give us a little summary of the plot of that for those, those who might not have seen it. Uh, for, that's for, possible. For, for, shocking. Shocking. <laughs> uh, uh, for those of you who haven't seen the Green Death, there's a mine in Wales that's taken over by a um, magnificently camp computer called Boss. Um, that they are, uh, that the, the, the mine is full of gr bright green industrial sludge that is breeding these vast, these very large maggots and uh, things, and they turn people bright green and they die. Uh, and the doctor and his companion Joe Grant 
um, go there. Joe, because she wants to, and the Doctor rather reluctantly, because he wants to take Joe to other planets. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, and it's all about environmentalism. And, and, and what Joe has learnt by travelling with the Doctor is that they need to save the Earth. That's the most important. She, wants to, she doesn't want to travel with them anymore. She wants to stay and sort the Earth out. But it's, it's the flip side of the, the thing that was going on at the same time, where the scientists are pulling the military back from these, these dodgy decisions, because there, there's also this fear that science, when it's in harness to big business and corporations, is also subject to making very unethical choices and decisions. So you have the, the Welsh mining community who, you know, basically being exploited by this big multinational corporation which is using science to extract wealth from their environment and destroy it at the same time. Uh, and, and you see that, that theme emerging again and again, I think, in that period, not just in Doctor Who. And, and the, same, you know, the same time that the Green Death is on, I think it's only a couple of months out, but you've got the final episode of, or the, the, the episode of The Ascent of Man, in which Jacob Bronowski talks about science under the Nazis. And he, as a, as a, 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 a Jewish scientist, steps out into the pond at Auschwitz and, and grabs the mud. It's the most amazing mm, moment of television. Of his ancestors. And, says, and says, as scientists, we have to connect. Um, and that, I'm not saying that, that, you know, I'm not doing a Venn diagram of that and Doctor Who. I think that's a bit crass, but, but there's definitely something in them that, that is, is exploring a similar idea, that, that, that the scientific, science is more than... It can't be simply an objective uh, fact-gathering thing, that, that actually it's bound up in politics and humanity and... But it's interesting that something like Doctor Who is one of the first places where this is, this is aired. I mean, you could say that something like Edge of Darkness, which I suppose was about 10 years, ten ten years, years later, later is, is almost a sort of a, a remake of The Green Death in some ways. Slightly less camp, I suppose, but, but still, you know, it's the same ideas coming through very, very strongly. Tell me, Merrick, about the portrayal of space and ideas around, you know, extraterrestrial life and so on, because I think you reminded me that there was the Rosetta Probe and there was a lot of news excitement about yeah, it. Yeah, I was, I was at an astronomy conference the other week where a press release went out. Um, someone had given a, a rather controversial talk um, about the Rosetta probe, which is currently orbiting um, Comet 67P, uh, sending back really beautiful detailed photos of the surface. And uh, this team had claimed that some of the structures you see on the surface might have been caused by bacteria, so, you know, alien life. And although I think, I think it's rubbish, um, and I'll go on record in, in public saying that. Um, it's interesting that it actually got to be aired at a serious scientific conference, whereas when you think back to the very beginnings of 1963 of uh, Doctor Who, you know, Sidney Newman is, is railing against the idea of he's not having bug-eyed monsters this in his series. You know, the, the, the Daleks, yes. So um, I just thought, how far have we come where these ideas are being discussed openly in a scientific meeting? And yet, you know, 50 years ago, you couldn't even have them on a children's science fiction series. So, yeah, I think we have come a long way. We are now in a position where it seems overwhelmingly likely that I think that, that there is life elsewhere in the universe. Whether there's intelligent life is a completely different question. But uh, in 1963, you couldn't say that, and now, now we can. So Doctor Who has grown up alongside that huge development in, in our understanding of the universe. Um, the, one of the questions I had was about how far often we think of science, and scientists like to think of themselves as somehow being impartial and neutral and outside of the politics and um, the sort of social consensus of the time. But actually watching Doctor Who, looking at the treatments of women characters and women scientists, mm -hmm. I wonder what your observations are about how far Doctor Who reveals 
the extent to which it might be trapped within the mores of its own time. Totally is, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 a fascinating document of of the times in which it was in which it was made. You, you talk about the, the treatment of, of the female characters. I mean, my God, you look back now and you just think, this is, this is awful. Now, of course, the trope is that the, the, the female companion is kind of the, is really the cleverest person in the, whole, in the whole series. And if she has a boyfriend, he's a bit dopey because you know, now, now women are clever and men are, men, are, men are silly. Well, I don't know. It depends how you define clever. Who's the assistant from the um, early episodes? Who, uh, there's, there's an episode where she's sitting... Cutman was holding court because he's such a brilliant scientist, and they're all amazed at how amazing Oh, that's uh, uh, amazing that would be the invasion from uh, 1968, no, and no, it's no. Uh, uh, this is the bit I can do. Um, <laughs> and uh, Zoe is from, I think she's from the year 2050, um, and she tells the unit soldiers what they need to do to track down a monster, and they want to keep her because she's prettier than a computer. <laughs> Um, but the point is, she's clever in, in the, the traditional way, as opposed to just smart in a yeah, sort and, of... And a lot of the companions way. have scientific degrees of one sort or another, or a scientist to, to one level or another. Martha Jones was a, was yeah. a qualified doctor, at least soon after she... But then, you know, it. she had to fall in love with the doctor. It's really interesting yeah. how often the female characters are undermined by some aspect. Um, whereas you think of... I mean, I remember hearing that reunion on Radio 4 with the original cast and crew of the Doctor, of Doctor Who, um, and the actress who played Susan... Uh, Caroline Ford. Caroline Ford said, you know, the plan was she was going to be like Emma Peel in The Avengers, it was going to be kind of high-kick... And she's alien, she's half-alien, <laughs> so she was going to have sort of an element of superintelligence, superpowers, and none of that happened. Well, it's... It, yes. There, there are two things here. One is that Doctor Who is to, has generally been on in a tea-time slot for the whole family to watch. So it's, it's, although it's done things like it's had the Doctor, uh, uh, you know, a, a kiss between two men, one of them being the Doctor, and it's, it's pushed things, it's made sort of political jokes of one to another. It's, no, it's not like primetime adult drama that's really pushing the envelope and, and being revolutionary in that way. Actually, what you see in Doctor Who, especially if you're watching it as a historical document, mm -hmm is what was considered as acceptable and okay and, and unrisk-worthy. So it's, it's revealing for the things that, pe that didn't flag something that would But now. isn't it interesting for a show that's all about breaking boundaries and thinking you know, about any fantastical possibility that Waris Hussein said, oh, well, she had to be the screamer because that's the trope. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know. but, but also, also Marek and I, my, our first time working together on Doctor Who stuff was I was writing a, um, a CD, a big finished play, for the third Doctor's companion, Liz Shaw, who has degrees in physics and medicine and everything else. And writing... She has more degrees than I have, that's it, for sure. It's and writing... And, and better hats and she, as well, yeah. Really good hats. You have some good hats, oh, Thank you. Um, <laughs> but, but writing that is really hard because she's got to be very, very clever. You've got to use that. You've got to use the fact that she's a working, professional scientist. So I said to Mary, I've got a story where they investigate a meteorite that's crashed into the Earth and stuff, and they're trying to work out whether it's a missile or whether it's extraterrestrial. What would they... And my idea is that it's a, it's a spaceship, and my idea is that the Doctor, who at that point is trapped on Earth, what he wants to do is get into it and get the, get the aliens that are inside it out. And Liz Shaw would be much more hesitant and want to do good science. So, Marek, what's the good science? And he literally sent me very... Uh, 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 accessible, that I could understand explanations of what she'd do. She'd be wanting to know 
uh, what she wanted to measure the, the sort of scar in the Earth and the angle of the Earth because that the spaceship had made, because then you could work out where it had come from and whether it had come from Earth orbit or from outside Earth orbit and various other things like that. And I just copy paste. I've got words in, in Liz Shaw's mouth, which was very satisfying. And that was, that was great. And then like, I did it again, and he went, no, this is where you have to do a GCSE. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because is it Liz Shaw who's in that episode where the John Pertwee doctor says, you know, kind of go away and that she wants to stay and work with him on something, and she's told, no, you have to go and just stay here with unit. I imagined that. Uh, Somebody. I think it's certainly a scientist, a female scientist. It might be someone who's already working for the government. Do you know that episode? Uh, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking there's, um, there's actually a scene where John, in the Silurians, John Pertwee, rather than the Doctor, they go down into a mine and the producer wanted her to wear her miniskirt and whatever. And John Pertwee said, no, that's ridiculous. She should wear the same overalls as everybody else. Um, which, which Caroline John, who played Liz Shaw, said that was basically the highlight of my time in Doctor Who. That was just like... <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, he's quite patronising to... He's, he's actually quite rude to poor old Joe Grant quite a lot. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of... The thing is that Liz Shaw wouldn't have taken it as well. So, mm -hmm. so he might have... Actually, there are times when she's running the lab and he goes off and fights the monsters, and she's the one that... There's definitely... I'm, am, I, am I misremembering? Does anyone else remember it? And he sort of says, you have to stay, and she's arguing with him about wanting to go. I think that's Joe. I think Is it that's jo Joe. No, it's yeah. a scientist. I think it might be not a companion, but it's oh, a scientist okay. at UNO. Okay. But anyway, I'm sorry, I've misremembered. Um, a mystery there, if anyone can solve yeah, the mystery. Yeah, the mystery that Simon can Come and tell solve. us afterwards. Right, let's take some questions then. We've got, have we got a roving microphone? Or two? Right, the first one is down here in the third row. And if anyone upstairs wants to ask them, do they need to come down? They do. If you want to ask a question, you can come down. Um, there you go. Hi. Um, for me, one of the most chilling moments of Doc in Doctor Who is um, Christopher Eccleston's second episode, when um, in the moment before Cassandra's death, when she's screaming in agony and Rose says, help her, and the Doctor says, everything has its time and everything dies. And this is an attitude that kind of, it comes back again later on, but with his distaste for Captain Jack's immortality. But yet, sometimes he has a, a reversed idea. And obviously the circumstances change, like when um, Harriet Jones killed the Sycorax in 2005 Christmas episode. And of course, there's the fact of his own immortality and the fact that he chooses to regenerate every time and he never dies. So I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, what do you think the Doctor's relationship is with the, sanctity, with the idea of the sanctity of life? And is it perhaps a hypocritical one? Oh, good question. That's a very good question. I, I don't know that Doctor Who's ever been entirely consistent, has it? <laughs> <laughs> Can I say that? Yes. Um, yes, there's that. I also think, as a, as a doctor, as a medical doctor, I think he's got quite a view on the quality of life. And that's something that the medical establishment in this country has to consider. You know, they, they budget how much, what treatments you can have by what they call a extended life year or, or something. But they, they work out it's something like £30,000 for each extra year of life that it, it would potentially give you. And also you, with counselling, if you have um, prenatal tests which show up any possibility of certain conditions, the advice you get given, there, there's a lot of stuff about... Um, you know, the quality of life this child might or might not have. And they always tell you to think of the worst-case scenario. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a story 
where Cassandra has clearly, you know, part of the thing about Cassandra is she's lost something by prolonging her life so long. And she's also just wiped out, killed loads and loads of people. And the doctor's, the doctor's sort of offhand, whatever, it's just that he doesn't intervene. And that, again, is a, that's a, that's a medical, you know, that's an that's a, that, that ethical NHS kind of a, a thing of non-intervention non non, non in, in a patient who, who um, you know, you're, you're not killing them, you're not saving them. That's, that's a thing. But the lack of intervention is a position. Yes, yes. yes. And, and again, the, you know, there's all sorts of things like the quality of life where, where in um, the, the end of the Peter Capaldi episodes last year, there's a big thing about Danny being turned into a Cyberman and he doesn't want to live. But the Brigadier seems to have been turned into a Cyberman and that's okay. So, so these things, are, these things are, are, are not black and white and importantly, they're not black and white. And also, very importantly, the Doctor's not always right. And if he's a bit blunt at the beginning of the Christopher Eccleston run, that's because Rose sort of tempers his callousness about these things as, the, as those, series, those stories go on. So, so yeah, I, I, think, I think the ethical position is a bit grey anyway, uh, and thus the inconsistency is a virtue. <laughs> well, I wonder whether it might have something to do with whether it's you're extending your own life at the expense of other people, which Cassandra clearly has done for a very long time. So I don't know, I haven't thought about all the other examples, yeah, yeah. but maybe that's, maybe that's really the, the defining... And, and not just at the expense of other people, but the expense of something intrinsic to yourself mm. as well. So, so we've seen somebody turning into a Dalek. There are people who voluntarily become Daleks in the same... or, or, or offer to become Daleks in the same... There are people who volunteer to become Cybermen because they think that would be a good thing. And, and somehow they stop being human in, in some way. Do you have another question? Sun. Oh, there we go. Do you have a microphone over here? Thank right. you. Um, what are your thoughts on the TARDIS being sentient? Being, on the TARDIS being what? The sentient. 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 I thought you said sentient. <laughs> I was very confused. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be even more interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it's, it's an idea that goes right back, doesn't it, to, um, to one of the first stories where the TARDIS is trying to... They're, they're on a collision course with, with the beginning of the solar system and the TARDIS is trying to warn them. I think, I think as computer science has moved on and we've got more and more used to the idea of, of artificial intelligence, it becomes less and less of a, of a surprise to us that the TARDIS might have a, a personality and an intelligence embedded within it. I think that's just how we expect very complicated machines to be now. We interact with them all the time. You know, you've got Siri on your phone that talks to you. Why wouldn't the TARDIS but do that But Siri's as well? female, and while I loved that Neil Gaiman episode, I have a really fundamental ambivalence about yet another machine that's a she like a ship. It's always been she, hasn't it? I mean, the Doctor's always called the TARDIS she. Mm. So that's all right, is it? Right. Or maybe other TARDISes were he's, so I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, it's, Simon. It's also... Uh, uh, there is a chapter in the amazing book that you could buy on artificial <laughs> intelligence uh, where we talk about this a, a bit. But I think, um, as Marek says, we are much more used to the idea of, uh, you know, if you go on, if you have a problem with a website and you go onto the help, you're never quite sure if the box that comes up is automated or not, whether you're actually talking to a person. And sometimes when you get cold calls, you're not quite sure if you're talking to a person or a, 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 a machine. 
And as we talk about in the book, when Tom Baker was the voice of British Telecom and you could send text messages and stuff, that was quite funny if you were into Doctor Who. It was really weird for people who knew Tom Baker. And um, <laughs> my favourite example of this, which I heard at a convention, is that um, Tom Baker used to be married to the, the actress who played the second Romana, Lala Ward, and she's now married to Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins texted his wife to say, I'm on the train, I'll be home late. <laughs> And she had a, um, she had a weird, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey message from the wrong husband. Um, and, uh, and that sort of stuff is going to happen more. You know, it's, it's, that, that, so the idea of the, doctor, the, the TARDIS being sentient and stuff is something they've talked about for a long time. It's in Planet of the Spiders, the, uh, the Doctor tells Mike Yates that, that he knows that Sarah Jane has been kidnapped and is on another planet. And Mike Yates goes, right, but how are you going to find a planet's big place. Um, and he says, well, I'll just leave that to the TARDIS, which is an amazing get-out clause. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a very neat bit of writing. Uh, but but th those, these things are not you know, unfamiliar in the show. The, the, the idea that, that you could personify the TARDIS is a natural extension of stuff that's been set up in Doctor Who for a long time, as well as, as, as Marek says, something that we're just a bit more comfortable with Anyway, but I think there is there is a, an element of it where, of where it's going that we're not entirely comfortable with. I was at a, a meeting at the Institute of Physics a few weeks ago, where um, they were presenting some results of computer-generated music, where they'd fed basically the whole of Bach into this computer program, and then it was composing Bach. Uh, it, you know, they were playing it side by side, and you could just about tell which was the computer and which was the um, the real Bach. But it's getting very close, and, and lots of people in the audience were very very uncomfortable with this and. Mm -hmm. What does it say about humans and human creativity? And I, I sort of felt I had to chip in, and I, I was saying, well, if we get to the point where a computer can write music that moves us, do we not just admit that it's become a person, and therefore it's not telling us something horrible that we're, that as human beings, we're just mechanistic. It's actually that we've created something which is like us and is a person, and perhaps that's a wonderful thing. That's I don't a, know. You, you were saying about using Doctor Who as a, kind of a, a, a way into history and looking at attitudes that are in the show. There's loads of examples in old Doctor Who of the Doctor being dismissive of computers. Um, he takes great pride in the two Doctors that Dostari has worked out his great uh, temporal theory using a paper and pen. Uh, in uh, a couple of stories in the 60s, the companions talk the big computers into... Uh, by using logic loops, they get the computers to blow themselves up, and it's very funny, because aren't computers silly? There's the thing we talked about earlier, where Zoe is much prettier than a computer and basically better. Um, you don't get that in... Uh, the, 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 the great revelation in the, in the Green Death is that the villain is a machine and has, shockingly, um, cameras that can follow you automatically down a corridor and just track you and stuff. That's a scary scientific, science fiction-y idea in 1973. Uh, Wotan in, in The War Machines in 1966 is a computer, and this is really scary, is a computer that can use the phone line to talk to other computers. <laughs> Whole four-episode story about this. Um, there's one bit where it um, hypnotises people by ringing them up as well, and it has one of my favourite bits of Doctor Who ever, where William Hartnell has to pick up the phone and act being taken over by an alien computer. It's, it's an amazing piece of uh, Doctor Who. Um, Which episode is that again? It's called The War Machines. 
Um, I still get a th I, I still get a thrill when I see the the, the, the well it was the post office tower. I still it makes me think of that. And like, because does anyone has anyone ever seen the bottom of the post office tower? Where does it touch the yeah, ground? It does. I've never seen it. It does. But does it have a? Yeah, it does. I just imagine it sort of just <laughs> it just hoppers. Clipstone Street. Right. It does have a, it does have a door then at but, ground yeah. level. But Good. that that what, what's interesting about that that kind of computer. The attitude to computers is you don't get that in the new series since 2005. That's just not there because our attitude to computers, just generally, what we accept, what we just take for granted, has changed dramatically. What's interesting very early on in, in Doctor Who when it came back is they deal with the issue of mobile phones and the Doctor yeah. um, changes Rosie's mobile phone so that she can ring her mum back in the present day while they're millions of years in, in the future um, because we've become so familiar with mobile phones, and we take them so for granted, that the idea that a companion wouldn't have their mobile phone is actually quite weird and unsettling. And um, in about 2000, I had a conversation with Stephen Moffat, who's now in charge of Doctor Who, in a pub, where he was talking about the fact that TV and film had reached a point where they could no longer ignore yeah. mobile phones because that's what they've been doing, because it causes all sorts of problems for thrillers and plots and not people not knowing. And um, Stephen's series, Coupling, his sitcom that he was writing at the time, was one of the first times I can remember not just people having phones, but it being part of the plot and being part of the story, because it took people a while to get their heads around how this technology works and how it impacts on our lives and, and to tell stories about it, because that's, that's what happens with these things. It takes a while to get, to get your head around what these things are. And you can see those sorts of things in Doctor Who quite a lot. Another question. There's not one that's about. Take the gentleman there first, and then we'll take the one near the front. Just <laughs> um, a question about um, identity. Right. Um, so, so as I get older, my, uh, my body changes, my, uh, my cells change, um, my memories uh, fade, I have new opinions about things. Um, do the doctor goes through this process times a million, um, with obviously not only being, I think, 2,000 years old now, but also going through these sort of uh, re regenerations, changing history, so maybe things that happened to him didn't really happen and so on. Um, is the doctor still the same person as he was in episode one and for you kind of what makes the doctor a doctor what makes a person a person over time so this that's is a um, good question this well. is this well, is what we call questions. a chapter 15 question I can <laughs> <laughs> chapter 15 um they they do actually discuss this quite a lot they discuss it in peter capaldi's first full episode uh, deep breath where he talks about the the being a broom and if you have a broom and you replace the, the broom bit and then you replace the handle and you replace the, yes. the handle. Has it, is it the same broom? And that, that, that's an old uh, ancient Greek um, philosophical argument called uh, Theseus's ship. Um, and um, yeah, there, there are, the, the, that's a philosophical question. The science of it, which we talk about in the book, is this idea that we regenerate ourselves. We, if you have a... Um, a scat, a, a, you know, a, a bruise or sunburn or those things, that's your skin regenerating from injury. And bits of our bodies regenerate at different speeds and our, our livers seem to... Your livers grow back. Yeah, and, and livers can grow back. Um, other things... Don't, uh, th th there, there was an idea that, that all of us 
you know, in our lifetime, every bit of us regenerates. That there's now conflicting evidence about particular bits. Um, but other animals, you know, octopuses and crabs and things, can regenerate limbs. And there is a, oh, can I remember what it is? Turatopsis dopsi, uh, the immortal jellyfish, is able to uh, revert from its adult stage to its pupil stage, so it's a polyp stage, which is the equivalent of getting to 80 and going, do you know what, this is no fun, and becoming a teenager again. <laughs> um, and the, the weird thing about it is that, is as far as we can tell, there's no limit on how many times it does that. It doesn't have Doctor Who's thing of only being able to regenerate 12 times and having 13 lives. They think that the reason that Turatopsid dopsi is found in two places in the world, in the Mediterranean and off the coast of Japan, and they're identical, is that they've just been doing it for a very, very long time, thousands of years, and these, these two groups are actually the same family, um, which is boggling, um, but, but real. Well, I think you, your, your question also touches on you know, our, our, our essence of self, our personality. And while your body is, is going through all of these changes and you're replacing your cells, what is it about you that remains you? Uh, and I guess it's, it's the pattern, it's the pattern of, of neurons you know, in your brain, the connections that, that are the unique thing. And even if those neurons are physically replaced, as long as the pattern remains in some sense the same, that there's some essence of you. But then what happens if you copy that pattern? There is a, is it 1977, The Invisible Enemy? Whereas part of the story, the Doctor and Leela are, are the clones. They make these very short-lived clones that only live for 20 minutes or so. And they're sent off to do another mission while the, the real or the original Doctor and Leela get on with something. And, and for those 20 minutes, you know, you get really engaged with the clones and they are, they are our hero and, and, and heroine and, and they're doing all this stuff and then they reach the end, they achieve their goal and then they just disintegrate. And I always, even as a child, I kind of thought, are we not supposed to be a bit sad at this point? Are they not the same? You know, they are as much the real people as the originals, but they've very cruelly been given this very short lifespan. And even they didn't seem to be particularly upset about the fact that they're only going to, you know, they keep saying, come on, we haven't got much longer, you know. Yeah. Very, very strange. Um, so, yes. There's, al there's also the nature of, of how experience shapes you and changes you. So I talked a bit earlier about how the Doctor's companions shape his morality and the way he responds to things. And, and you know, it's been suggested in... in the story is that maybe one of the things that he does as he regenerates is finds bodies that better match him to his companions, and that's why he gets younger and geekier and whatever. Um, and there's, there's various things going on there. Um, one of the things that I find quite interesting that I've been doing, sort of exploring in some of the stories I've written is about what the Doctor remembers of being a previous incarnation. Mm. And uh, one of my favourite examples of this is in a, a book called Happy Endings, uh, by Paul Cornell, written in 1994 or five, I think, um, where Sylvester McCoy's doctor organises a cricket match in an English village between the humans who live in the village and the aliens who've come for a, uh, for a wedding. And he thinks, <laughs> he thinks that this will settle all the bits of dispute and argument and stuff that have been going on. And when he was Peter Davison two incarnations before, he was really into cricket. And Paul writes a brilliant description of Sylvester McCoy's doctor kind of remembering roughly what cricket is and how it works, but actually having to go to borrow a book to remember what the rules are, because that was somebody else. 
And I remember that, that's, that stuck with me all these years later because that, that really haunted me, that he is the same person, but he's not the same person. That's brilliant. And you see it in, in things like um, In the End of Time, David Tennant's last episode, when he sat having tea with Bernard Cribbins. He makes it quite explicit that he's going to die and he dies and somebody else walks away and it's not him. And that, you know, that's Russell, just uh, Russell T. Davis who wrote it, just digging the knife into the audience <laughs> and making it as excruciating as possible. But it's b b b absolutely brilliant. And yet, if you watch a, a film like Duncan Jones's Moon, that's what that's all about, that we're not the person we were three years ago. Um, and it's an amazing film that explores that sort of stuff. And Doctor Who has yet to rip it off. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to be the first. Okay. But I think there is that, that, that element. It is a metaphor for what it is to be, to be a human being because we all remember the people that we were, but we're not necessarily the people that we were. You know, the other day I was trying to figure out how do you, you analyse a Hubble Space Telescope data set? I used to do it every single day. Now I remember the, sort of the, the outline of it, but I couldn't sit down and do it because that's not my job anymore, and I've kind of I've shunted that out and replaced it with, with other stuff. But that's also the idea of memory, of the length of lifespan, and that you don't have room to carry all those sets of memories, that they do fade. Yes. Good. There was a question at the front, wasn't it? Was it you? We've got a microphone here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was going to ask about uh, Remembrance of the Daleks because you were talking about the, the bit in Genesis of the Daleks where he was about to touch the wires together and you were tying it into the Time War and um, the day of the Doctor when he was about to press the button. Like, What are your thoughts on, in remembrance of the Daleks, when the seventh Doctor does, in fact, destroy Scarrow um, to stop Davros and like why he would do something like that when in before, in a past incarnation, he opted not to do something very similar? Doesn't he, doesn't he let Davros... Do, he sets a trap, but Davros presses the button, doesn't yeah. he? I mean, I, I'm not saying that that's ethically um, uh, clear that, that, that that's a good thing to do, but I think there is a, a, slight, a slight difference. Am I right there? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Remembrance of the Daleks, the Doctor takes a Time Lord super weapon and... Another tricks, one. Tr yes, tricks the Daleks into stealing it so that they can turn their star into a black hole which will give them time travel technology like the Time Lords and actually what it does is it blows up their star and their planet. Um, more, I think actually more interestingly from that point of view is the final bit of that episode, once he's done that, the original script by uh, Ben Aronovich had a high noon situation where there's a Dalek left on, on 1960s Earth and what are they going to do with it? And the Doctor basically faces it down with a bazooka and they have a high noon moment. And Sylvester McCoy and the producer went, um, I don't actually feel very comfortable with that. It's, it's, it's one thing for him to trick Davros into blowing up his own, his own planet and destroying all the Daleks and stuff. But actually having the Doctor shoot a Dalek seems wrong. So earlier in the episode, they gave the bazooka to Ace, and she's the one that blows up the Dalek. And for this high noon thing, the Doctor talks the Dalek to death. By, and it's exactly the same thing that we talked about earlier, where he, he sort of plays to its sense of logic, and it, it, can't, it has a sort of breakdown because of the, the paradox of the, the fact that it's got no orders and stuff. Um, and there's a bit of me that still... I, I, mean, I must have read that in Doctor Who magazine sort of 20 years ago, but there's a bit of me that still feels that that's a bit of a cheat, and that actually it would be cool to see the Doctor going, the only way to deal with the situation 
is for me to get my hands dirty, which is actually something that's explored in the story as well and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, again, you're getting into the morality of it and stuff. Um, okay, time for one or two more. So take the one over here, and I'll take the lady over there as our last two, probably. The gentleman just here, uh, the white T-shirt. How does a doctor feel about regeneration over his past regenerations? Because when David Tennant had to nearly regenerate, you know, when he put the regeneration energy into the hand, um, how, how does he feel over time with the regenerations? And also, how many lives does he officially have? <laughs> Continuity question. <laughs> I'll leave that one to you. Right. The, um, how he feels about it is that it's a death. That's, that's very clear. He, 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 the way he talks about it himself is that the, the, the sort of emotional way that it's played in the episodes is definitely that he's dying and becoming somebody else. Other Time Lords don't seem to have the same problem. Other Time Lords, especially when we see them regenerate, it's like changing a hat. They're, they're, they're not bothered. Romana, when she regenerates, she tries on different bodies That's before really? she settles on one. <laughs> and having tried one that the doctor didn't like because it looked like somebody that they just met, which he, he thinks is a bit weird, um, she tries on different bodies and goes back to that one. Um, so, uh, and it's a sort of jokey scene in Destiny of the Daleks, but, but other time lords do it at Campo, Rinpoche, he appears as the body that he's going to be at the same time, and then they swap over it. So the, the Doctor's um, regeneration seems to be atypical. We were told in The Deadly Assassin in 1977 that the Doctor has 12 regenerations and 13 lives, but at the end of the time, time of the Doctor, the Doctor got a new cycle. So uh, uh, he has a, another run. Uh, and in uh, Death of the Doctor, the Sarah Jane adventure, Matt Smith, said that you could regenerate 500 times and stuff. My favourite example of this uh, as an answer, though, is imagine the BBC board meeting where all of the, the high-up <laughs> people of uh, the BBC, all the people who, who own the money and whatever, are going, well, uh, whoever is the 28th doctor has decided to leave. Um, Who's going to be next? And somebody pops up and goes, well, actually, in the time of the Doctor, he only got one more regeneration cycle. So that, um, it's a very successful show. It makes us a lot of money. <laughs> but that's it. We can't, we can't do anymore. Um, I'm not sure that'll, that'll happen. I, th yeah. I think there is a, there's an element in, in the idea of regeneration. Again, it's, it's a metaphor for being a human being, isn't it? It's, it's about the fact that, that things in your life change you and you can never really go back. And there is always, when you reach the end of a stage of your life, you might be excited about the next stage, but there's always a bit of nostalgia and clinging and not wanting to, to leave you know, where you're at now. Yeah. I think that's, for me, that's what regeneration and means. I, and I think Doctor Who's about change as well, that things don't stay the same, that change is a, you know, a part of life, and to embrace it, actually. Um, yes, yeah, Sarah Jane says something about that, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, School yeah. reunion, very moving. It's I can true. feel myself welling up now. <laughs> there was another question on this row, wasn't there? Who was it? Is it you? Yes. Hi. Firstly, I wanted to thank you for the very interesting discussions. And secondly, I've 
rather got two questions and I hope I'll be permitted to ask both. Okay, make them brief because we're in the last of five course, minutes. Yeah. Of course. So firstly, I was going, going back to the inconsistencies of the doctor. Would you say that his ethics are rather utilitarian in nature? I mean, he seems to not willingly sacrifice others, but he does have the famous line saying, I'm so sorry, and that's kind of it. Run, save yourselves, the rest of you. Unless it comes to his companions. You know, for example, he went to war over Amy Pond and her daughter. So would it be overall that he looks to achieve the greatest good and the greatest amount of happiness? And secondly, this came up for me uh, whilst listening to discussions earlier. Going back to Samira's point, uh, where she said, you know, a lot of the female characters are undermined. Demonstrably, you said, you know, Doctor Who is not a uh, show that goes uh, to push envelopes and push those boundaries, but demonstrably, it influences a lot of people. For example, you know, you said it influenced you to become an astronomer. Uh, should we not be discussing these issues? Should we not be pushing those boundaries if youngsters are watching this at a family time and uh, if we ever hope to break those uh, gender stereotypes? I, I'll just answer that, the second point first. I think, yes, I, I, I phrased that badly. I didn't mean that it's not um, pushing barriers and stuff. I meant, I meant more that it doesn't put in controversial content and stuff. They consciously and clearly consciously try to make the companions role models. That's why they've all got, so many of them have got degrees and that's why there's so much stuff about agency and, and the companions are often, even back in the 60s, are often devising the way out of the cell, tying the baddies up in knots in you know arguments and stuff. They are resourceful, smart people. Um, and I think when they work best, is when they're like that. And a bit of lazy writing or cutting corners is when it doesn't work so well. And, and often what you see, as Samira sort of alluded to it, is a companion when they're introduced is very, very strong. Uh, uh, I don't want to use the word strong, but, but has lots of agency and has a dynamic and has a, has a very um, distinctive <laughs> voice. And the way they see things is very distinctive. And the longer they go in, the more generic they become. That's the, that's the danger. Um, and there's, uh, uh, Caroline Ford's not the only actress who's played a companion who talks about the same sort of slide. Yeah. Um, so I think they are, they are very good at pushing boundaries and thinking about that sort of thing. Um, as to utilitarianism... Um, I, think, I, think, <laughs> I think he does. He does do that sometimes, but also sometimes he's very sentimental. Um, and I think maybe, maybe that's actually what, what most people are like, actually. Sometimes we, we think about things and we, we weigh up the ethical equation and sometimes we just act from the heart and, and those two things are not always the same. I'm not sure that's deliberate in the series. I think it's probably just because it's been going for 50 years and lots of different writers have contributed and it's a bit of a mess, but a glorious mess. But I do think that reflects how, how most people behave, actually. There's a, there's a kind of... Um philosophy called, I think it's called trolleyism or something, which is about a series of experiments like, like that, that, that are thought things about when it's okay to kill somebody in different circumstances and stuff. Oh, and they, do, they do these surveys. And I think actually what Doctor Who stories do is, is, a, is a, actually each different story presents a similar series of things. So he might do it in this one, but he might not do it in that one. And the circumstances are different. But also there's something very disturbing about the Doctor's view of time and space, and you know, Christopher Eccleston talks about being able to feel the turn of the earth, and he can just feel that and stuff. Um, 
The doctor also seems to have a sense of who matters and who doesn't. And there's something very odd about that. There's something odd about he seems to know who's going to be a good companion and he seems to know when it's okay to... when, the, when there are people that you can just let go. And wow. that's something that hasn't really been explored, but, but I find really disturbing. Very good point. Oh, let's leave it in a really disturbing point. Um, I have to ask you just finally, how soon do you reckon we might get a female doctor? I think that'd be great. I think do you think we will, though? When? Yeah, of, yeah, when. You don't know when? What's but but it's, it's a question of when, not if, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think we should get one <laughs> soon. You but two should be writing Doctor and running it and be sorted. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, in, in a way, we, we already have, because we had Romana, and I keep coming back to her. I think she was a brilliant character that didn't get used as, as well as she could have done, but she was like a female Doctor, and I think she'd be amazing. Absolutely. Listen, thank you both to Marit Kukula and Simon Guerrier. Thank you for some brilliant questions. Signing books at the back, if you haven't already bought one, do. It's a terrific read, and um, if you can buy them as gifts as well, you'll sign them, won't you? Thank you. Thank you.